So there are, oh, I'm sorry, there are handouts on the center bima, right on that, that pole over there. There are handouts over there, I'm sorry. Did everyone get, okay. Irma, you see that, Irma? Yeah, okay. So today we're going to talk about a very, very, very controversial topic, uh, but we are not shy of controversy, and it would be, you know, disingenuous if we were to shy away from parts of the Torah that make us uncomfortable. We have to grapple with it. We have to grapple with it. So this week's Parsha is Parshas Mishpatim. Parshas Mishpatim. Um, and it follows the giving of the Torah. In, in last week, we read in Shul about the giving of the Torah, uh, the Ten Commandments, and what follows is a long list of laws. This week's Torah portion has a very, very long list of laws. It goes from law to law to law to law, from section to section, and that is the entirety. Now, many of the laws are laws that we relate to or familiar with, laws of damages, laws of, you know, what happens if you borrow someone's item and it gets ruined. Great. No problem. We have no problem wrapping our heads around those things. However, however, within these set of laws, and actually in the beginning of these set of laws, there are a set of laws that I think are quite unsettling for many of us. And that is, there is a whole long list of laws that pertain to slavery. To slavery. The Torah clearly acknowledges an institution called slavery and does not outlaw it. There is nowhere in the Torah that it says, thou shall not have a slave. On the contrary, it gives a whole long list of laws that pertain to slavery. And of course, it's difficult to, it, it just doesn't sit well. I'll say it as simple as that, right? I mean, the notion of slavery, the Torah, or our guide, or beacon of light towards ethics and morality for it to in some way, even implicitly endorse slavery is troubling. Yeah, am I the only one troubled? I think we're all, right? It's, 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 it's hard, right? What's going on? So we want to understand it. We want to understand, and I'm going to preface my words today by saying, I'm not sure if you're going to walk out of here uh, saying, wow, amazing. But at least we'll, we'll do our best to try to grapple with it. I think we'll walk out with a slightly different perspective. I hope a more positive perspective. But at the very least, so I don't think you're going to walk away today inspired, letting you know now, okay? No, just uh, spoiler alerts. But I do want us to, to grapple with it, to try to understand it, and see how our sages throughout the ages dealt with what troubled them as well. Okay. Now, it's, it's, it's worth noting that, as I said, the beginning, and so we're not going to use a punch there. We're going to have a lot of sources which we're going to read together. Um, and, and we're going to start really with a, a quote. Uh, but before we read the quotes, I'll just share with you. As I mentioned, the Torah portion begins by discussing the laws of slavery. And it's not just the Torah portion. After the Ten Commandments, this is really the first set of laws. So it's like the Ten Commandments are like almost like the table of contents. They are the introduction. They are the big ones, the top ten. And now, Elam Mishpatim, these are the details. Okay, that's how most of the commentators understand it. And amazingly, the details begin with the laws of slavery. Why is it? And as we'll see, the Torah is... Uh, you know, has many unique laws and many somewhat compassionate laws, I would say, about slaves. So there's a beautiful quote here from Mahatma Gandhi. And it's, uh, it's an idea that, that he's predated by Samson Rafal Hirsch, one of the great German Jewish philosophers. And Mahatma Gandhi says it very succinctly. He says, a nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, you know, it, it's, it's good and easy to be nice to the person who is your boss, the person who you need, but the person who is dependent on you, the person who you could easily ignore and nothing will happen, the person who you could easily take advantage of and nothing will happen, that's when the real judgment takes place, right? Where that's where we're really judged. And he says a society is judged by how it treats its weakest members. And so suggest or first, that's precisely why the Torah begins, not with the laws of how to treat a Kohen, a priest, how to treat a king, how to treat, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a Torah scholar, 
How do we treat slaves? Because if we get that right, and again, we have to deal with how do we even have an institution of slavery? But if we get that right, that's an indication that this is a potentially a just society. Okay. Now, before we go further, it's important to also note that there are two types of slaves that are listed in this week's Torah portion. One is what we call an Eved Ivri, a Jewish slave. And one is what we call an Eved Kenani, Kenan, the country that they were invading, but it's a general term for all non-Jewish slaves. The laws for both of them are radically different. The Jewish slave is much easier for us to treat, okay? The laws for the Jewish slave are, are as follows. A Jew who is, uh, you know, is, is in debt usually, that's, that's basically the way the Torah frames it. A Jew who is in debt. So what does the Jew decide to do? They're in debt, so they sell themselves as a slave and it doesn't last forever. How long does it last for? Up to seven years, up to the seventh year, the Shemitah year, right? In, 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 in Israel, right now, they're experiencing what we call the Shemitah, the sabbatical year. And the sabbatical year has many ramifications, not only for the land that they're not allowed to cultivate during this seventh year, but also slaves would go free in that seventh year, okay? So basically, a person is impoverished. They have no money. They have no way of building it up. So they sell themselves as a slave. They're making money and they have their room and board taken care of. And not only that, but let's read an important line. And here's source number two. Again, I, I didn't number the sources. I apologize. But this is a source from uh, the Gemara and Kedushin that says, uh, it, it bases it on a verse in this week's parsha that says, prospered with you. So the, the, that's a part of the verse. And the Gemara, the Talmud learns from there, with you in food, with you in drink. And therefore it should not be that you eat refined bread and he eats coarse bread that you drink old, which is better wine, and he drinks new wine, that you sleep on cloth and he sleeps on straw, but rather, and before we read on, rather means he has to have your Jewish slave has to be treated exactly the same way you treat yourself. So if you're having steak for breakfast, or breakfast, if you're having steak for dinner, then you have to share, you have to give your slave, your Jewish slave, the exact same thing. Not your typical vision of what slavery looks like. If you sleep on a king bed with a, uh, uh, what's that, that the, the cushion, the, the one that recognizes your, your which? There we go. That's one of them, right? All the fancy, you have a fancy mattress, your slave gets the same fancy mattress, right? Everything you have, the slave has to have exactly the same, okay? Based upon this, and this is the end of the Gemara, they say, all who acquire a Jewish slave is like one who has acquired a master, you think you acquired a slave? Really? Yes, they have to work for you. But you must treat them exactly like one of the family, not just one of the family, but like the head of the family. That's the way they're treated. Again, it's short term. They're given every single benefit that the head of the house has. That's the Jewish slave. Okay. Less, the word slave still bothers us, but they're not really, clearly they're not what we would call, you know, what we perceive as, as slavery in the sense that the property, they, they go free after at the, every seven years they have to go free. Uh, you have to treat them with incredible respect and incredible. It's a very different, we call it the word, we use the Hebrew term eved, but it's clearly not what we would associate with slavery. So the Jewish slave, I'm not as bothered by. The word slave is still, uh, there's a source sheet right behind you, Elliot. Uh, the, 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 the term slave is still there, but it's not really slavery as we know it. Please. Right. Why is there a difference is a, is a, is a good question. Why is there a difference? We're not going to address that today. Uh, why there even, there's even this difference. But, but we'll, we'll stick with it. So, yeah, right. You're bothered by the fact that there is a, why should there be any distinction is a good question. What we're going to try to address is why does the Torah even allow, again, the Torah never says you should 
go get slaves. But by giving laws and not outlawing it, it's implicitly saying it's, it's not bad. It seems to be, I should say, it seems to be implicitly saying it's not bad. That's the question I want to focus on. Why there's that difference, I'm not going to focus on today. Yes. Great question. Does he, go free? he does. He does. So you will only be, and if you, you could become a person, I mean, you have to be silly, but a person sells himself as a slave a month before Shemitah, they go free at Shemitah. No, it's not a seven year cycle. It's not that you're a slave for seven years. Every seven years, no matter what, when the seventh year hits, when the sabbatical year hits, the person goes free. Okay, so now let's focus on a non Jewish slave. And here, obviously, it's a lot more controversial. We'll begin with a, a, an idea. I don't know if you'll like it. It doesn't, you know, but, but it's, it'll, it'll, it's food for thought. And this is Ruf Cook over here who is addressing, he is sharing some rationalization why the Torah doesn't outlaw slavery. It's important to note that Ruf Cook is writing this in the early 20th century, okay, in the early 20th century, well before we have many of the benefits that we have in our society right now for the typical worker, right? Early 20th century, if you were working in a sweatshop, what, uh, what was your paid leave? How many days of paid leave would you get? Exactly. What was your healthcare benefits? Nothing, Nothing right? What would ha- whatever, Gornished, right? Everything was there, was there. So that's the world he's writing this in. I, I would venture to say, in my limited knowledge of Cook, he would probably write something a little different today, but let's, let's read it in its historical context. Says Rav Cook, you should know, and this is in a letter that he's writing. He says, you should know that slavery as with all moral upstanding ways of God in which the righteous walk and the evil stumble never in itself caused any fault or error. Okay, let's see what he means. Slavery is a natural law amongst the human race. Indeed, there is no difference between legal slavery and natural slavery. And what he's describing over here, he's saying like this. He's saying that there is what we call, what he calls natural slaves and, and uh, legal slavery. What does he mean? He means there are people in society who for all intents and purposes are slaves. They may not be legally termed a slave, but again, let's go back to the sweatshop worker in the early 20th century. Were they, if someone, if the boss would get mad at them and hit them across the face, what would happen? Nothing, Nothing right? I'm not going to keep on going, right? The point is, for all intents and purposes, where did they live? They lived in a, in a hole in the wall, if they were lucky, right? For all intents and purposes, they were slaves. It's true. No one owned them. So there were technical differences. They could leave that job if they chose. Do they really have another option without that education? No, nothing, right? Without that education. So he says there are natural slaves. As part of society, there is always going to be, maybe in a messianic era will be different, but in our world, as there still is today, there are always people, or there's always a, a spectrum of society. And there are people on the bottom rung of society who he's describing as naturally slaves. Again, I, I know this, these terms still are great on us, but, but his point is there are people who are, who are by dint of the, the, their station in life, they are going to be, there are things that their lifestyle and their experience is one which is akin to slavery. That is a natural slave. And then, of course, there's the legal slave where someone is truly, quote unquote, owned by someone else. Says Rav Cook further. In fact, legal slavery is within the jurisdiction of Torah and is legislated in order to control certain flaws. And this because God anticipated the reality of natural slavery. So he says that the whole acknowledgement and endorsement in his words, in his idea, he says the Torah, as it does in this week's Parsha, does give at least implicit endorsement to slavery. Why? Because he says there are already slaves. So we could close our eyes and say, no, there's no such thing. Right? We're trying as a society 
there's this effort, which is a new effort. It's a brand new effort. By, by brand new, I mean it's a novel idea in the past hundred years where we basically say we have a responsibility to those on the bottom of society. That's a new idea. That's a new idea. And we're trying. We still haven't been successful. Oh, we're, we're trying to raise minimum wage. Is that helping? I don't know. I'm not an economist. But, but, you know, but we're trying to give different benefits. Is it helping? I'm sure all these things are contributing, but all these things are complicated, right? So we're trying to figure out ways to ensure that there are less people on the bottom rungs of society. But we know, you know, we're not, I don't, I'll speak for myself, I'm not a, a communist, I'm not a, we, I don't believe that there's always, there's going to be absolute equality and that everyone's going to receive the same portion. There is always going to be a hierarchy of sorts. So even if we save people from poverty, which, and, uh, just to be clear, this is obviously an admirable attempt that we are making as a society to do this, right? But we're trying and trying and trying. We've yet to be successful, but our success will still, I imagine, only make it that there will be people, people who will not be impoverished and people have a basic opportunity for education. But will everyone be, I don't know, uh, Jeff Bezos and, uh, and a Bill Gates and Elon Musk? No, of course not. That, 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 that's, that's, that's wishful thinking. It's not, not realistic. There's always going to be, based on a number of factors, luck, our genetics, our, you know, so many different things, right, God, divine providence. But there's always going to be, society, you know, differences. Says Rav Cook, God, who created the world, recognizes that these distinctions and differences exist and therefore created laws of slavery to give parameters to ensure the safety and the health, as he's going to explain, of these people. So first of all, do you, right, this just, we're expanding our minds, right? This is not the way we normally would start thinking about this, but, but he's making an incredibly important point. He, he's, he's saying that, yes, the Torah, of course, opens, is meant to guide us and meant to push us towards an ideal society. But the Torah is also, God, is also, it, it has to ensure that we are being realistic, Right? And so there has to be realistic laws that deal with the realities of the world. The realities of the world, suggests Rav Cook, is that there's always going to be people on the bottom of society. He says slavery is going to help them. And let's see how. He says, um, the reality of life is that there is rich and poor, weak and strong. A person who has great wealth hires poor people legally in order to do his work. These employees are in fact, quote unquote, natural slaves due to their socioeconomic standing. For example, coal miners, right? That was a big industry and still is, but, but a big unregulated industry, certainly where he, when, when and where he lived. These people go to work in the mines of their own free will, but they're in, in effect slaves to their employers. And maybe, this is the key line, if they were actually owned by their employer, they would be better off. Why? The rich with their stone hearts scoff at all morals and ethics. They don't care if the mines lack air and light, even if this shortens the life expectancy of their workers, whose numbers run into the tens of thousands, many of whom become critically ill. Right? He says, there is no vested interest for the, slave, for the coal miner owner to care about the health of their worker. Because you know what happens? Oh, you're coughing today? You're not able to make it? No problem. I'll find someone else. I have no, I have no investment, right? I don't need a skilled worker to do this. I need someone who has a body and is somewhat strong. Boom, I'm done. So they have no investment, you know, again, they certainly won't engage in extra expense, any extra expense to improve working conditions in the mines. And if a mine shaft collapses, burying, burying workers alive, they don't care. Tomorrow they will find new workers to employ. If these people were owned by the master by legal slavery, he would have a financial interest to look after their lives and well-being because they are his own assets. What do you think? It's a fascinating, it's, it's, a, it's a different take. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yes, Roberta. It's fascinating if it was, but history tells us that slave owners didn't always... Didn't abide by this. Correct, correct. Rav Cook would argue, 
<coughs> not wood, as he said in the opening line. He says, in which the righteous, says, the slavery is, is, is with all moral upstanding ways, in which the righteous walk and the evil stumble. He says, it's not intrinsically going to be, meaning democracy is also, uh, you know, a beautiful thing. Does it always work? <laughs> no, clearly not, right? Uh, so his point is that if followed by the way the Torah list, listed, and we're going to go into some of the laws, he says then, on the contrary, it's, it's, it would be their value, right? You don't want to lose your, your, your assets, right? So recognizing what human, how human beings function and operate. If I own this slave, I have an extra obligation. But you're right. History has shown that people have not done so. Um, he's suggesting if had we followed the Torah's parameters, perhaps it would be a different story. That, that's his argument. His argument is that doing it the way the Torah suggests would create a diff- would, would actually be helpful, not only not detrimental, but helpful to those people. And, and the whole reason the Torah introduces slavery is a recognition of what he calls, quote-unquote, natural slavery. Okay? It's an interesting take. Let's see a very different approach. Yes, yeah. You know, I don't know. The, the book of his letters are not, we don't see the questions. As in most letters, whenever we have, uh, not always, some, 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 yeah, you know, Jewish history is awesome. Uh, you know, we, 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 don't, we weren't very good historians, uh, uh, you know, for, for many years, but, but, but we cared a lot about Jewish law. And so, you know, you could have the dry legalistic Jewish law, like the Jewish code of law, which is a book. Do this, don't do that. It's like the Ten Commandments, but like a lot more. Okay, and then, and then you have what we call Shilos and Chuvos. And what they are, are these letters that were sent all over the world between communities and rabbis, and, and they're arguing with each other. And those are talking about real life stories. And you get their personality comes through, and they're, you know, the Chassam Sofer, you know, one of the greats, not even that long ago, but he's writing in one tshuva, and he's saying, you know, I'm in the middle of writing this thing, and I believe, and he quoting, it's a very impressive tshuva, and in the middle he says, and I, and I, I would quote more books to, to support this, but my wife is right now cleaning my house for Pesach, and I'm not allowed in. It's like, unbelievable. This is like, the Chassam Sofer is seen as like, it, you know, that is one of our elite, and just like, it's so personal and so real and so like, almost whimsical. you know, like, you know, it's just, ah. Anyway, bottom line is like, those, those responsa, so some of the authors of these responsa include the questions. Very often, we just see the answers. We all, I, I, if I recall correctly, there's only an answer here. Yeah. Okay. So let's, um, okay. So as I pointed out, there is a, so let, let, let's jump to the next uh, to the bottom of the page, killing a non-Jewish slave. We're going to see a very different, a very different approach. Okay, D- don't worry about the, the stuff that I'm just uh, glossing over. Okay, so this is a pasuk from this week's parsha. If a person shall strike his slave or his maidservant with a staff, and he or she dies by his hand, then he or she shall be avenged. Okay, we'll see what that means. But if he or she survives for a day or two, then he shall not be avenged, for he or she is the master's property. So what does it mean that he or she shall be avenged? If, so what the Torah over here is saying: if you hit your slave. And the slave dies, you will be avenged. What does it mean you'll be avenged? Says the Mechilta. Says, so let's turn the page. He shall be avenged, i.e. the death penalty. The death penalty. Okay, so basically, if you kill, if you had a slave, and you killed that slave, according to Jewish law, you get killed. Now let me ask you again. This is the Torah's law, to Roberta's point. You know, in American history, if you had a slave and you killed that slave, what happens to you? Uh, I don't know if there were any, was there any, nothing, right? Was there uh, any law? I don't know. Slap on that frisk. I don't know. I don't know if there's anything, but certainly you would not get capital punishment. <laughs> not a chance, right? Not a chance. Depends right? on the lawyer. Depends on the lawyer, right? Okay. Yeah, I guess so. But right, clearly, so this is a novel idea. We're going to come back to this, okay? Um, okay. 
fine. Let's, uh, okay, let's keep on going. Let's just jump to injuring a slave, which is the next, uh, the next, uh, the next bold words. Injuring a slave. Um, and if a person strikes the eye of his slave, you see that Shemos 21, that's also from this week's parsha. And if a person strikes the eye of his slave or the eye of his maidservant and blinds him or her, he shall send him or her free on account of the eye. And if he caused the tooth of his slave or of his maidservant to be knocked out, he shall send him or her free on account of the tooth. Do you hear that? If a master were to go ahead, not only if they blind their slave, which obviously is true, if they were to hit their slave and in the process, a tooth were to fall out. It's not pleasant, but a tooth were to fall out, the slave goes free. Okay? Obviously incredibly novel. Okay? But let's just keep those two laws. There are more laws that we could go through. And I'm going to read to you a long piece and I'm blinking on who I... I, I I didn't see this in the book, and there's someone, he, uh, one of the r- rabbis in, in Gush Etzion, I don't remember who it is, so I want to give credit, but I don't remember who I, who I found it in, but someone's partial lecture on this topic, he found the source and he quoted over here, so I, I, I'm giving credit to whomever it is. I don't remember his name, but I just want to acknowledge that, I, and, and it's from a book called Kadmonios Halacha, um, written by Rav Shlomo Rubinstein. And we're going to read it together in full, because it's, it's awesome. It's just fascinating. The Gemara teaches... There are 24, so there's a long quote, so bear with me. The Gemara teaches there are 24 protruding limbs of a person, for all of which a slave is set free. In other words, if a master were to impact or to cut off, to sever any of these protruding limbs, the Talmud tells us the slave goes free. What are they? The tips of the finger, toes, ears, nose, okay, all the private parts. Rabbi, uh, Rabbi also says testicles, but Isaac says also the tongue. Bottom line is, any what we call protruding parts that are severed by a master... To the slave, the slave goes free. Continues Rabbi Rubenstein. The situation of a slave in ancient times was truly awful. And here he's describing, he's not describing in Jewish circles, he's describing society at large. Slavery was a normal part of society in the ancient world. He was like an object owned by his master who was free to do whatever he wanted in order to force the slave to perform hard labor day and night and to use him for all kinds of perverted purposes, right? What he's saying is that it wasn't just slavery, as we know from just American history and some of our presidents even. We know that, uh, you know, that, that uh, the, the slaves weren't just working physically for them. They were oftentimes working sexually for them as well. Okay. The master could beat a slave mercilessly for any major or minor wrongdoing. He could permanently maim his limbs without fear of any punishment. For any purpose desired by the master, the slave could be blinded. Um, Herodotus writes that the Scythians used to blind their captive slaves so they would work in producing butter, okay? Um, And there were several others, uh, such purposes for which slaves would be struck with blindness to the point where putting out eyes became a symbol of slavery, okay? So he points out that blinding a slave actually becomes a sign of slavery. Where do you have the best sign of this? Anyone, any, any images come to mind? Any stories that you know have come to mind? That's right, Shimshon, Samson, right? What do the, what do the Philistines do? What do the Pelishtim do to Samson when they capture him? So there are many Midrashic teachings as to why they blinded him because he, was, he wasn't so good about looking in the right places. Fine. But on a simple level, why do they blind, blind him? Because they're degrading him. They're saying, you're a slave, right? They put him in a mill to go work, right? Blinding was a sign of slavery. Uh, I believe what was the, there was a famous movie called The Gladiator, I think, if I remember correctly, the, the protagonist at one point, I think, they blind him, right? As a way of showing, like, you're a Gornish, you're a nobody. That's, blinding becomes synonymous with being, with, with being a slave. Likewise, prisoners taken in war blinded as a sign of slavery. And this was done uh, particularly to kings and officers of the defeated army as a sign of revenge and enslavement. For the same reason, Shimshon was blinded by the Philistines. And this is apparently the meaning of the words of Nachash the Ammonite to the men of Yavesh Gilad. Okay, by this condition, I'll make a covenant with you if you all put out your right eye. Okay, so there's this very interesting dialogue in the book of Shmuel 
where this individual wants to uh, become uh, in charge of a region. And he says, I'll be in charge of you on condition that you blind yourselves. Now, take it on face value. That's insane. Or they're all going to blind themselves so he could be their leader. You know, it's hard enough to get someone to go and, and vote, you know, circle, I'm going to blind myself so you could be in charge of me. Give me a break, right? It's a, it's a euphemism. He's saying, blind yourself, meaning you, I am your master. That's what he was saying. He's saying, I'm going to do it, but only if I really have power. I don't want to do it as like a puppet leader. I want you to blind your eyes, meaning it's, a, it's, a, it's synonymous. It's a way of saying, I want, I'm going to be in charge. If to say, in order you'll be slaves and prisoners of war to me. For the same reason, King Tzidkiyahu was blinded by Nebuchadnezzar. And this is also the meaning of the words of Dustin and Avirim to Moshe. When Dustin and Avirim are the two troublemakers in the desert who always give Moshe a hard time. And one point, when Moshe confronts them, what does he say? Will you put out the eyes of these men? Will, will you blind us? Like they're speaking rhetorically. And of course, Moshe's not going to blind them. But what, is, what they're saying is if to say, are we considered in your eyes as slaves, prisoners of war, that you will exert your power over us and do to us whatever you wish to drag us wherever you decide? Okay, the arrogance on the parts of the enslavers seems to have lasted until much later times, explain, explaining even Herod's blinding above a Ben Buta. Okay, so he's referring to Gemara much later. This is the times already of the Romans, and we know this from, from Roman history that, you know, we, we find this man Herod goes ahead and blinds uh, one of the rabbis uh, as a way of in demonstrating that he is subservient to him. So blinding becomes synonymous with being a slave. That is one of the signs you're a slave if a person is blinded. Let's, let's keep on going. We're going to pull this all together. For some wrongdoing in his work or for breaking some vessel, the slave's fingers or hands could be cut off. And this was apparently also done to prisoners of war as a sign of enslavement. This explains the amputation of thumbs and big toes by Adoni Bezek, who testifies that 70 kings with their thumbs and big to- toes amputated would gather food under my table. Okay, so Adon, what, what is he referring to? Again, he's, he's, he's flying all over the Bible over here, all over Tanakh and, and Talmud, referencing different things. There is a figure, an enemy of the Jews, a referenced in Tanakh. In, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Torah, in, in the Bible, where, where he, this king is described as someone who has all 70 kings, meaning 70 leaders of different regions who sit under, sit under him, meaning they are subservient to him, and they're lacking in toes and fingers, toes and, and, and thumbs. Why don't they have toes and thumbs? The answer is because one way to demonstrate that he was in charge of them after conquering them was that this man, Adoni Bezek, went ahead and to say, you know, I'm really in charge. I'll show you how because you're like a slave to me. How do you know that? He cuts off their thumb. He cuts off their toe. This was normal. Again, we, we live, thank God. We, we won't stop and think like the world we live in, right? For all its problems. My gosh, you know, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. We live in an amazing world. But this was normal. This is normal. You know, you take the, the way that they, fine. Okay. Um, uh, this was practiced among the Romans too. Seneca reports that for breakage of a small vessel, the slave's hands would be cut off or he would be put to death. That was the law. Seneca, great legal, you know, mind the law. You want to know what's legal and moral and ethical in, in, in ancient Rome? If you break a vessel, uh, if you're a slave and you break a vessel, you're, you're lucky if you get your arm cut off. If not, you die. Okay, that was the norm. Okay, the amputation of a slave's ears was so commonly practiced that it was established as a punishment for slaves. Okay, the Hammurabi Code stipulates, right? The Hammurabi Code is the most ancient set of laws that, we ha- that, 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 in, that the world has. If a slave strikes a free person on the cheek, his ear is to be cut off. If a slave tells his master, you are not my master, and it is proved that he's in fact his master, then his master is to cut off his ear. So again, cutting off the ear is another way of showing that you are a slave. So so far we have blinding, we have cutting off toes, thumbs, 
and cutting off ears. I apologize for the not so sort of the, the graphic uh, nature of this conversation. Slaves were routinely castrated in order that thoughts of women would not interfere with their work, and eunuchs were also used to serve women. This was so common that the term eunuch came to be used for all kinds of servants, even those not castrated, like Potiphar. Who's Potiphar? Potiphar is the his wife is the one who tries to seduce Yosef. He is described as Sris Paro, the eunuch of Paro. Now, there is some debate. Some suggest he actually was impotent and he was actually really castrated. But others suggest, no, he wasn't, right? Because it's actually, the Torah indicates that he has a daughter who actually goes ahead and marries Yosef, right? So there are those who say he really was uh, castrated. And this daughter, the Midrashim, have a fascinating story suggesting that this adopted daughter was none other than a daughter of Dina. That's right. Very good. A daughter of Dina. Fine. The simple understanding, that's the Midrashic explanation, the simple understanding is Potiphar was, was, was not impotent. He was, you know, fine. And, and he had a daughter, right? So why is he called a eunuch, right? Why is he called someone, someone who's castrated? Because it was so common for the people working with the kings to be castrated that that just became a word we called. We called anyone who worked for a king, a, a, someone who's, we assume, the assumption was, the term was, you're castrated, we assume that they were that they were castrated. Why? Because it was the norm. Again, why was the norm? Because we they wanted to make sure that no one working for them would get involved with the women that were designated for the king, right? So that's what they would do. This was normal, right? You got a great. I work for the king. Oh, lucky you, right? Uh, fine, right? Bottom line, this was normal practice. Normal practice. Okay, um, right. Uh, and the royal wine bearer and baker who are referred to as Paro's eunuchs are also called Srisim. Sris in Hebrew is a eunuch. In summary, there was nothing that prevented a master from doing any of this to his slave. It seems that they would even make the slaves deaf in order they would not talk among themselves during their work or for other purposes, right? Again, it was nor- this was normal practice. And they would strike or knock out their teeth so they would not be able to eat much. You save if they don't eat much, right? Cicero describes uh, how it was common among the Romans that if a slave knew some evidence against his master, the master was cut- would cut out his tongue in order that he would not be able to testify. And the maiming of slaves, either by purposeless beating or for some purpose desired by the master, was so common that blemishes were inflicted on the exposed body parts of the slave in order to mark him as a slave. And the blemishes were a sign of slavery. What do we call this? Branding, right? They would oftentimes have, like, uh, they would actually go ahead and, like they do to cows, they would go ahead and put, like, a symbol, it would be a, a burn on the, on the slave in order to show. No one would get confused and say, oh, they're not, no, no, that's a slave and everyone will know it. Right? It was against all of this. All of this. So now think about the historical context. It was against all of this that the Torah came to improve the lot of slaves and their worth as much as was possible in those days. For beating the, to death, the Torah prescribes, he shall surely be avenged, which in view of the sages refers to the death penalty. For causing blemishes to expose body parts in order to thereby signify that he was a slave, or even without such express intent, the Torah prescribes that he shall be sent him free, which is the opposite of the purpose of creating these blemishes. From this we derive the laws stipulating the master must set the slave free for causing blemishes upon the exposed body parts. So what, 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 uh, what, uh, um, what's I'm blanking on his name now, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Rubenstein is suggesting is as follows. All the demeaning features of slavery. Slavery in and of itself is demeaning. Being someone else, being property of someone else is demeaning. Granted. But all the demeaning, uh, visible features of slavery, the fact that, and, and the dangers of slavery, the fact that a master could go ahead and maim his slave, not only could, but is sometimes seen as should maim the slave. Blinding is seen as, well, that's what you do to a slave. Branding, that's what you do to a slave. Cutting off the toes, casting, that's what you do to a slave. 
The Torah says absolutely not. All those things which indicate slavery, the Torah says no, those pre- precise things are what's going to set the slave free. You see how the Torah goes ahead and takes, and, and so it's not coincidence that, you know, the notion of, of, of the, the Torah's law is that if you cut off a limb, he goes free. It's not just, it's not, it, it has to be taken, it, the context is because that's precisely what they did to subjugate the slaves. And the Torah is saying no. Granted, the Torah is acknowledging slavery and in some way allowing slavery. But the Torah is saying all those demeaning things, which are symbols of slavery, in the Torah's worldview, that's, at, that's completely not allowed to the point that if you do that, you'll set your slave free. If you think you could, the slave belongs to you, you could go ahead and do what you want at your own will, you're going to go ahead and kill your slave? No. You're going to be executed, just like you kill another regular human being. The slave is not a nothing. The slave is a human being. Granted, granted, uh, the, the laws, there is a sense of property, which is what the Torah describes a slave as. But when you contrast that with what slavery was at the time, it is possibly, possibly one of the most radical laws in the Torah. In its historical context, what the Torah is describing, how you should treat your slaves, is, again, in my opinion, possibly one of the most radical novelties and, uh, you know, that the Torah has to, to offer. Still doesn't necessarily sit well with us, but that historical contrast, I think, is very important. So, so far we've seen Rav Cook's approach, who justifies slavery, saying that it's protecting what he describes as the natural slave. We have Rav Rubenstein pointing out the historical context is one we have to recognize that what the Torah says about slavery or what it says about slaves actually is, is something which certainly ensures that slaves are not dehumanized to the full extent. And on the contrary, anything that would be done to fully dehumanize them, the Torah would ensure that that doesn't happen to the point that it frees them if you do any of those things and it treats them like a human being in the sense that if you kill them, you will be killed. Yes? Where, where do you go to complain when you have problems like that. Excellent. The Bastin, the, the Jewish court would be, this is an excellent question. The Jewish court would have to take these complaints. Meaning this is, as I saw, as we saw, the first set of laws in the, in the Eila HaMishpatim. If you were a preparing to be a judge in the ancient world, the first set of laws you will learn are these laws. Okay. So a slave could go and bring a case to the Jewish court. Pretty amazing. Right. Um, okay. Let's go, let's go one, one, one approach, one last approach. So, so far we've seen like the historical context approach, which says in its context, historically, it was, not only was it not that bad, it was actually quite good. There are those who justify it like Rav Cook. And then we have this very intriguing approach of Rabbi Sachs. Okay, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, one of the great uh, Jewish thinkers, passed away not that long ago, says as follows. It doesn't say, the Torah doesn't say abolish slavery. Surely it should have done. Is that not the whole point of the story thus far? Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. He, as the Egyptian viceroy Tzafnat Paneach, threatens them with slavery. Generations later, when a pharaoh arises who knew not Joseph, let's turn the page, the entire Israelite people become Egypt's slaves. Slavery, like vengeance, is a vicious circle that has no natural end. Why not then? Give it a supernatural end. Why did God not say there shall be no more slavery? This is the question we started off with. What's going on? You know, Rabbi Sachs is saying, even that, you know, we're saying from our own personal inner moral compass saying slavery doesn't sit well. Rabbi Sachs is saying, even the Torah clearly indicates that Torah is not good. All the storyline in Beratius, the beginning of Shemos is telling us, is putting slavery in a negative light. So the Torah clearly has issue with slavery. Why then? Doesn't God just get up and commandment number one, I'm God, don't, don't serve idols, keep Shabbos, 
Get rid of your slaves. Sorry, that was a little loud. Okay, and get rid of your slaves. That'd be it. Why doesn't the Torah do that? The Torah has already given us an implicit answer. Okay, this is his approach. Change is possible in human nature, but it takes time. Time on a vast scale. Centuries, even millennia. There is little doubt that in terms of the Torah's value system, the exercise of power by one person over another without their consent is a fundamental assault against human dignity. This is not just true of the relationship between master and slave. It is even true, according to many classic Jewish commentators, of the relationship between king and subjects, rulers and ruled. According to the sages, it is even true of the relationship between God and the human being. The Talmud says that if God really did coerce the Jewish people to accept the Torah by suspending the mountain over their heads, there's a famous uh, Talmudic teaching that God said, you better keep the Torah, right? That would constitute an objection to the very terms of the covenant itself. There's a whole Talmudic discussion. If that did indeed happen, if God threatened us saying you must accept it, there's a Talmudic discussion whether the Torah was even binding in such a relationship. We are God's Avadim servants only because our answers freely chose to be. Okay? So slavery, says Rabbi Sachs, is to be abolished. But it is a fundamental principle of God's relationship with us that he does not force us to change faster than we are able to do so of our own free will. So Mishpatim, our Torah portion, does not abolish slavery, but it sets in motion a series of fundamental laws that will lead people, albeit at their own pace, to abolish it of their own accord. If history tells us anything, it is that God has patience, though it is often sorely tried. He wanted slavery abolished, but he wanted it to be done by free human beings coming to see of their own accord the evil it is and the evil it does. The God of history who taught us to study history had faith that eventually we will learn the lessons of history. The freedom is indivisible. We must grant freedom to others if we truly seek it for ourselves. First of all, what a loss for the race His writing is just like, it's like honey. You could just like read and read. Anyway, what does he say? What he's saying is that, yes, of course, throughout the Torah, the, one, the value of freedom of independence is, ram, is, is everywhere in the Torah, both in the biblical sources, the Talmudic sources, the notion of us being independent, of choosing to do th- things is, fundamental to, is a fundamental Jewish idea. He says that at the same time, God wants us to change, but he wants us to change, to really change. When you do things dramatically, you know, I remember uh, Brett Stevens recently had an article a couple of years ago uh, talking about the French Revolution. And he was describing how, you know, the French Revolution had very novel ideas, but it was too rushed, was his argument. Basically, it was the sense of rip all the past, not just rushed, but it was too dramatic. And basically, what he was saying is that what they did is they, they ripped apart everything that came before it. We're starting at the fresh slates. How long did it last? Okay, the, the streets of Paris were, were flowing with blood and, you know, they're still trying to figure things out over there. Okay, but bottom line is, bottom line is that, that you know, change, real change takes place gradually. It doesn't take place by just throwing everything out and especially if there are deep-rooted elements in society, it takes, it, it's not easy. It's not easy to make these changes. And therefore he suggests, his argument, his theory is that slavery is so deeply embedded in the societies of an ancient civilization that for God to go ahead and say, drop slavery, it wouldn't have affected real change. Instead, we have a whole set of laws, a whole entire system, which revolves around, you know, begins with the notion of Tzelem Elohim, of God creating us in his image and that being true for all human beings, uh, Jew and non-Jew alike, all, all colors, all, all, everything. God, believe, God tells us that every human being is created in his image 
and with time, that will gradually allow us to see that this institution is evil. So Rabbi Sachs is saying, no one in the Torah doesn't say you should have slavery, but it doesn't abolish it. It creates parameters, which as we saw, are radical, were radical for their time, and not just for their time, were radical even as early as, you know, 150 years ago in America, right? So still radical till a very, very short amount of time ago. If the Torah, if slavery would have been kept as the Torah demanded of us in, in you know, in, in the times, you know, not that long ago, it'd be a very, we'd be having a very different story about slavery, okay? But Rabbi Sachs is arguing that the Torah set the stage and set in motion a way of thinking that would ultimately allow us and encourage us to come to the realization of our own that this institution cannot last. So that's Rabbi Sachs's fascinating theory. Um, it's, it's, it's unique. It's unique because we don't find other... It's, it, it's, it's a very radical idea because he's suggesting that the Torah, you know, that God it wants there to be an evolution of sorts in the way we think about things, in our human practices, which, you know, from a religious perspective is, is a unique way of thinking. Um, but it's, it's a fascinating approach to contemplate. And so let's just quickly summarize. There are two sets of slaves. The first thing, well, you know, there are two sets of slaves in the Torah. There's the Eved Ivri, the, what we call the Jewish slave. We're not even talking about that. There, as the Torah says, you acquire a slave, you really acquire a master. Easy. Not, not so complicated. It's not eternal. They're not your slaves forever. They go free. There is the notion of a non-Jewish slave, which is complicated and difficult and grates on us. We saw Rabbi Cook, Rabbi Cook suggests some rationale that it's basically creating a framework, a healthy and, and safe framework for those who will always be on the bottom rung of society. Okay, Again, we have our own projects and, and, and attempts to do so in the modern times. It took us a long time to get there. Rabbi, Rabbi Cook is suggesting that this was an ancient practice that was allowed and, and ensured the safety and the care for recognizing our human frailty, recognizing the fact there's always division in society, this was a set of laws that looked out for the most vulnerable. And we have, uh, we pointed out that historically, again, there's this incredible contrast where the things that demonstrated you were a slave in, in the great, you know, advanced countries like Rome, those same uh, things that demonstrated you were a slave in Jewish law actually freed the slave because they demonstrated a, a lack of care for their human dignity. And therefore, if you cut that finger off, you blinded the slave, you knocked out their teeth, tooth even, that slave goes free. And we have this idea of Rabbi Sachs that God was setting in motion a reality which we're living today where we recognize, thanks to the laws and values the Torah taught us, that slavery is bad, but God wanted us to come to it on our own. And so to speak, God has patience. As, and I'll conclude how we begin. And that is that, you know, whether this sits perfectly well with us or not, it's okay if it doesn't. We're grappling with it. But clearly, 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 the Torah, how, whichever way you take it, clearly the Torah is much more attuned to human dignity um, than we flippantly will say slavery, you know, but there is a sense of, of looking out for human dignity uh, for those specifically on the bottom rung of society. And as we saw from Sam's from Rafael Hirsch, and again, encapsulated by Mahatma Gandhi, a nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members. And I would add and extend a person's greatness is by how they measure the weakest, so to speak, people around them. And so I think that should be our guiding principle. If there's one thing you get out of Parshas Mishpatim, it is this incredible sensitivity to those who are vulnerable, those who are incapable of looking out for themselves, the Torah demands of us to be the ones looking out. Even before they scream and look out and reach out to us, it's our responsibility to ensure that they are safe, they are cared for. Okay. Have a good Shabbos. I hope we learned something. I look forward to continuing. I'm being on a regular pattern. I'm sorry about the last weeks. 